There is an opportunity for them to transition into something that's a little bit more democratic than what we have today. Today, it's not a democracy. Uh, it, that's for sure. For 20 years after the Taliban was overthrown in the wake of 9-11, all the news from Afghanistan was a war and conflict. But at the same time, there was a vibrant media scene. And the leading player in that is an Afghan entrepreneur called Saad Massini, who spent much of his young life in Melbourne. Saad set up a media group, including a news organisation called Tolo News, which operated as freely and as independently as it would have done in a Western country until the Taliban came back. Saad championed democracy with really courageous journalists who often paid with their lives. And now he's trying to keep the flickering light of press freedom alive in a country ruled by a theocratic autocracy. Saad, just can you walk us through what was happening inside your news organisation, inside Tolo News, in the hours and then days after the Taliban took over? It was one of the most extraordinary, perhaps 72 hours. We got news that Ashraf Ghani had fled. To Afghanistan now, where the Taliban is seizing control of more and more territory. Concerns are growing that they could take the capital of Kabul, home to the U.S. Embassy and hundreds of American troops. And we sat on the story for a couple of hours um, because we knew it was going to cause panic. And when we broke the story, the government collapsed. I'm not saying it's our fault, but it, that news would have leaked anyway. And basically, that's when everyone at the airport tried to board planes. And, you know, I'm talking about the people who worked at the airport, security people and so forth. Afghanistan's government has fallen to Islamist militants who make up the Taliban and the frenzy for Afghan citizens and diplomats trying to escape the country today reached a fever pitch. Seven Afghans died in a frantic scramble at the Kabul airport, two of whom apparently fell after hanging onto the wheels of a U.S. cargo plane as it took off. And then the country was basically paralyzed uh, uh, without a government. And essentially, I think the international community, everyone called on the Taliban to come in and take over because at that time they were still on the outskirts of the city. And then they visited media outlets and they were smart. They did, you know, I mean, the restrictions came over time. Uh, they're quite patient. Um, they try to engage with international local media. They were pretty effective in their takeover. And it wasn't long before they had absolute control, you know, all over the country. But it was scary. From a nearby compound on Monday, heavy gunfire could be heard throughout the day. As the sun sets in Kabul tonight, technically there is no one in charge of this city. It's an extremely tense situation. For us, we had two challenges. One was the Taliban, which we managed, I, I thought, pretty well. But the other challenge was that people were fleeing the country. So our reporters were coming in one morning and saying, well, uh, I'm going out for a coffee and don't, you know, and would go straight to the airport, get on a plane and leave. And I think one of the tragedies for Afghanistan was that not only did we lose 
I wouldn't say thriving, but certainly a, 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 a political order that allowed people to, you know, thrive in despite the corruption with the, with the state and so forth. But we also lost perhaps two or three hundred thousand of our best. The, the brain drain that we saw just in that August, in the August of 2021, had a significant neg- negative impact on the country, especially on an organization such as ours. We lost our best journalists and producers who fled in the two weeks after the fall of the government. And that continues. People continue to leave. This is going to be an ongoing challenge for, for us to lose our best. What has it meant for, for journalism and for news and for your news platform, Tolo News in particular? It's a, it, it's, it's, it's a war and uh, it continues. I mean, it's on a, uh, every single day there's a challenge. Every single day there's an arrest. Every single day there's, an, you know, someone gets intimidated. It's an ongoing process. Where we, whereas in the past we had the safety net, the international community that would step in from time to time to, to support local media. Today we have to do the fighting ourselves. And I'm not saying we're prevailing, but it's a, it's a strange dance. And, and there's perhaps, you know, 22 months on, there is this understanding with the Taliban regime and a certain acceptance that, so, uh, that stories should and must run, then they should not attempt to, 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 to censor them. And, and I think, I think we're in a much better place than we were 20 months ago because we were not certain of things. Today, we know where to push. That's on the news side. On the entertainment side, it's been a disaster. There's no music. There's no entertainment. People can still consume a lot of stuff online or via satellite. But at least in, in Afghanistan with, with the local airwaves, it's very limited. So there are no movies or television series, dramas or anything like that? With, with the local Afghan outlets, no. There are game shows. There are the morning shows. There's still laughter and comedy and things like that. But it's... It's very limited. You can't air, like, say, Turkish soap operas. It's a different landscape altogether. So, Saad, how does the media market, if you use that term advisedly, for news in Afghanistan under the Taliban today, say, compare to the news environment in Iran? No, it's completely, uh, it's it's uh, night and day. Uh I joked in a, uh, well, it wasn't quite a joke, but in a, in a forum in India, I pointed out that Afghanistan, even under the Taliban, probably has a, a freer media sector than in India or Turkey for that matter. But even today, really, even today, there is almost nothing that we cannot report on. Now, we may not do it with, you know, with, you know, with a sort of as aggressive as we were, say, pre, 2021, but we pretty much report on almost everything. And that's not the that's not the case in India or or Turkey. That's not the case in India. You know, I mean, you'd be struggling to survive if you were to criticize the Modi government or the BJP or its policies towards minorities. Or Iran has no free media. Pretty much everything's under the control of the state. And even in Turkey, as we've seen, I mean, there are limits to what you can report on, how you report on things. And Afghanistan, you know, I know it sounds very controversial, but I think as far as news is concerned, we're in a much better place. Well, what about women not able to go to school after the age of 12 now? Uh, Certainly they can't go to universities. You had a lot of female journalists, both reporters and presenters. What's happened to them in the Taliban era, Mark II? 
that is that is the tragedy that we're you know continuing to push back on since the ban. Um, we've done over six hundred stories and special reports uh, on women's education and and why they need to go back to school. Um, so there is serious pushback from within the country. Uh, you know, I think if the change will come again, it has to come from within. And I think the pressure that the administration is facing from within the country will probably, I think, will be far more uh, significant, uh, the, the pressure they're facing from the international community. Will it come? I think it will. Uh, the question is when. Why is the Taliban tradition culture so antagonistic and so repressive towards women? I think women's issue for the Taliban, especially the last 20 years, uh, is perhaps, you know, it was a point of humiliation for them. Every time something about women was mentioned uh, during the Karzai-Rani era, it was humiliating for them. It was, a, it was actually people in short to mentioned the Taliban. I think for them it's become a question of pride, some weird pride thing, perhaps. Nonetheless, uh, what's interesting over the last 22 months is that the number of women, not necessarily working in the government or NGOs, but number of women active in the private sector has shot up based on the numbers I've seen because it's a necessity now to survive. The economic situation is so dire that women have to make products at home or, you know, get involved in some sort of a cottage industry or become entrepreneurs. So you can't hold women back. And I think for the Taliban, uh, it's, it's funny because a colleague of mine left Kabul yesterday. He said that in the passport control, every single uh, government official stamping passports was a female. So they haven't completely disappeared. Uh, they're obviously working in certain ministries. They work for private companies such as ours. I mean, we have a large number of women working for us. But obviously, they've been, you know, quote unquote, eradicated from certain government ministries and NGOs. But you cannot, I mean, women, it's half the population. And I think the Taliban are beginning to realize that it's impossible for the country to function without women participating in the workforce. So, so what went wrong, Saad? I mean, how did, you know, after overthrowing the Taliban after the wake of 9-11, the United States and its allies spent billions, trillions of dollars in Afghanistan, but now the Taliban are back. So what what went wrong? What was, the, was there one fundamental mistake or were there many of them? I think there were many of them. I think the, the biggest problem for Afghanistan, uh, and you probably as Prime Minister recognised, uh, was was how inept and corrupt the government was, and completely detached from from the country. I mean, Ashraf Ghani, while he was president, did not have one press conference, a proper press conference, where he would take questions from journalists. Not one. Mm-hmm. Uh, he f- felt compelled to go to Brussels or London or you know Canberra, Washington, but he d- didn't see a need to appeal to to Afghans. He didn't see his constituency as being within the country. So I, th- I think that was important. But the corruption, it's a poison, it's a cancer that eats away the, the, the country, the government. And I think, um, I, you know, there's an old adage that oppositions don't win, governments lose, whether it's elections or wars or whatever. And I think they lost the f- trust of the 
of the population. In Australia, an internal military investigation claims to have evidence of war crimes committed by special forces deployed to Afghanistan. It was a trial labelled one of the most dramatic in Australian legal and military history. Today is a day of justice. It's a day of justice for those brave men of the SAS who stood up and told the truth about who Ben Robert Smith is. A war criminal, a bully and a liar. How was that Ben Robert Smith case reported inside Afghanistan? Well, I, you know, we've been documenting um, let's call them war crimes or um, civilian casualties, um, either by accident or by design for years. As a matter of fact, in the early years, we were afraid that we'd be raided or attacked like Al Jazeera, Jazeera was by the international forces in 2004 and 2005. So for us, it's been a very important topic, which we've covered uh, over the years. The Afghan public is not surprised and I think this is one of the factors that also led to the to the rise of the Taliban. For the Taliban, it's, uh, you know, their reaction was, you know, I told you so, we've been saying this for a long time. For the Afghan public, it's like, well, we knew, we knew these things were happening. So there, I don't think anyone was surprised, to be honest with you. It's for 20 years we've been dealing with these, uh, with these reports and these incidents. Does it have any impact on the way Afghans uh, see Australia? I think it does, but I think that's why I think it's important for Australia also uh, to step up its media engagement because Australia also did a lot of good things in in the 20 years following the fall of the Taliban. It's an ongoing relationship. It's one that um, that's important to me, and I think I think I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that Australia needs to do more to also highlight some of the good things that they've done, so that uh, that, that the footage of the court case is not the one that remains with most Afghans. Saad, you, so you've been on the front line, you and your courageous journalist, endeavouring to defend democracy in Afghanistan. How do you see the battle for democracy in the West? I think for for most people, it's very frustrating. I mean, I think, uh, and you see it, I'm sure in Australia as well, is that People are unwilling to listen to each other. And I think this is, uh, it's very sad to see, actually, uh, this lack of intellectual humility. And I think people are going to their own echo chambers, having their views reinforced. Uh, this unwillingness to consider the other side is, is, is scary, actually. And I think that this sort of gives, potentially could give rise to authoritarian regimes as we're seeing in, in a new country like in Hungary. And, and the people's willingness to give, to give up their rights. You mentioned Viktor Orban in Hungary, the increasingly authoritarian Prime Minister of Hungary, who has effectively muzzled the press, so there's no opposition press. He's, a, he's undermined the independence of the judiciary, done all of that purportedly within the law, using that term advisedly. And yet he is the hero of many people on the right, whether it's Tucker Carlson in the United States or Republicans generally who, who uh, praise Orban, Trump praised Orban. Our own Tony Abbott in Australia recently said that Victor Orban was the sort of leader conservatives all, out, all around the world were yearning for. Well, I hope that's not the case because uh, that's, you know, that, that's a very clear road 
uh, away from democracy into authoritarianism. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, people don't realize how close we always are. We're on the edge constantly. And to fall off the edge, it's just a question of, you know, one election result. It's very easy for it to happen. And you can see it happening in the U.S. You can see it happening in Australia. Maybe Australia less so. I think the system itself has some, some safeguards, but certainly not in the U.S. The lesson for so many of us around the world is never to take democracy for granted. I and mean, I think I was in Berlin last week and I went to the Stasi Museum just to remind myself that even in a Western nation, democratic rights can be taken away from you very quickly. And I think you know, democracy and love are two things you cannot take for granted. Saad, this has really been so interesting as all our discussions have been. I'm, I, it's, it's grim, grim tidings, obviously, but also I can see that you have hope of uh, things improving in your homeland. So thank you very much. Thank you for your courage. Thank your journalists and your team at Tolo News in particular for their courage and the sacrifices they've made. And uh, look forward to seeing you again soon in one part of the world or another. Thank you, Malcolm. Great to be on your show. podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Chaika. <laughs>